0: Welcome to Ufamu Africa, a podcast on life and politics on the African continent. My name is Kim Dion and I'm your host. This week's episode focuses on Zimbabwe, where there is a new president. Following a week of shifts in power, Robert Mugabe ultimately resigned from office. And on Friday, his former vice president, Emerson Mnangagwa, was sworn in as president. There is a series of great posts we edited at the Monkey Cage as events unfolded. First, I'd like to point listeners to Dr. Chipa Dendere's piece on Grace Mugabe, the former first lady and a key figure in the Zimbabwe crisis. Gucci Grace, as she has been known, had been campaigning for months to oust Mnangagwa from the ruling party ZANU-PF. There's also a great explainer post on authoritarianism and coups written by Andrea Kendall Taylor and Erica France. Kendall Taylor and France ask, what went wrong for Mugabe since most aging dictators don't get toppled by coups? They help define what a coup is and show that the definition may be evolving as authoritarian regimes also engage new strategies to stay in power. Finally, Dr. Kristen Harkness of the University of St. Andrews has a piece cautioning against too much celebration at Mugabe's ouster. Titled, Without Mugabe, Is Democracy Coming to Zimbabwe? Probably Not?, Harkness's piece offers three reasons why democracy in Zimbabwe is an unlikely outcome recent trends in African coups, the loyalty of Zimbabwe's military to the ruling party, and because the new president, Emerson Mnangagwa, is deeply implicated in the corruption and human rights abuses that occurred during Mugabe's rule. In Kenya this week, the Supreme Court upheld Uhura Kenyatta's win in the repeat election held in October that was boycotted by Raila Odinga, the leading opposition candidate. Kenyatta is due to be sworn in as president on Tuesday. Mishak Samati, a doctoral student at Georgia State University, has written about Kenya's Supreme Court and the 2017 elections, providing broader context to the role judiciaries play in African elections, particularly as it relates to reducing violence. In his research of 392 African elections, Samati finds that courts can mediate disputed elections, but losers won't rely on courts in countries where the judiciary is not independent. His research shows the importance of judges having security of office with removal procedures divested from the executive or legislature. Otherwise, we should expect to see competitive elections potentially leading to violence. Finally, I found an interesting piece in the Ugandan Daily Monitor about women who bore children of Chinese nationals who were working on a dam construction project. The women and children have been abandoned by the Chinese fathers and local communities are petitioning the Chinese power company that brought the workers to Uganda to provide support for the children. The piece raises a lot of interesting questions. I was reading it at the same time. I'm reading Peter Kamani's new book, The Dance of the Jacaranda, a beautiful work of historical fiction set in colonial Kenya that has similar stories of mixed children fathered by empire. On Monday morning, I'll post links to what I've mentioned here as well as bonus links to our website, ufamuafrica.com. This week's episode features a conversation with Dr. George Kari Kwaivenane. Dr. Kari Kwaivenane is a lecturer in African Studies at the University of Edinburgh and the author of The Struggle Over State Power in Zimbabwe Law and Politics Since 1950, recently published by Cambridge University Press. He earned bachelor's and master's degrees in economic history at the University of Zimbabwe and a second master's degree in African studies, as well as a doctorate in history from the University of Oxford. I spoke with George last week at the annual meeting of the African Studies Association in Chicago. That means our chat came before Mugabe resigned, but during the shift in power in Zimbabwe. George, thank you for agreeing to be a guest on Ufahamu Africa. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited because we get to talk about your new book, The Struggle Over State Power in Zimbabwe, Law and Politics, since 1950. Now, it seems particularly important to understand the historical context for the unfolding events and the struggle for power in Zimbabwe today you know, when we set up to speak with each other here at ASA, we didn't know that there was going to be a military takeover in the capital, And so um, so I know that, you know, events are unfolding and things are fluid still. So uh, we're all going to understand that in, in, in the conversation we're having today. Now, your book sheds light on the prominent place that law has assumed in Zimbabwe's recent political struggles yes. and on the role of law in state-making. Now, based on your research, what What role do you expect the law will play in presidential succession?
1: My, so it's hard to say at the moment but the sense I get is that law is not going to play a big part because what we have going on is more of a game of thrones mm-hmm. so, what, so this is, my sense is that law is going to play a part at the end as people try and choreograph everything and mm. try and address everything in legality mm. so at the moment, because Zanapir doesn't have a long history, it has a long history rather of not being able to conduct succession or transfer of power properly right. so in the 1970s you had this, you had different process of intrigue and palace cruise Mm -hmm. and then in the 1970s you also had mysterious deaths so basically they don't have a history of transfer of power that is very sort of simple so at this moment i don't think we're going to have that kind of thing Mm. in terms of a smooth process of transfer of power so law is going to come at the end as they try and choreograph things to give it the appearance of having been a constitutional process but it's going to be about backroom deals um Mm. Someone has been asked to jump or be pushed, and then he's Mm. going to demand something. And then after those deals, then we'll see, at the end of the day, they'll then work out a process whereby it was constitutionally.
0: So let's talk about the statement from the Zimbabwe Defense Forces televised after the military took over the state broadcaster. In this statement that was read, there are a number of constituencies that were specifically called out. For example, civil servants, um, other members of parliament, um, the people of Zimbabwe, political parties, the youth, churches and religious organizations. But in particular, one one of the first groups that's called out is the judiciary. So I just want to read what was read to the judiciary. The measures underway are intended to ensure that, as an independent arm of the state, you are able to exercise your independent authority without fear of being obstructed, as has been the case with this group of individuals. Why do you think the military made a specific shout out to the judiciary in their statement? And and what do you think about this thing that that they're telling the judiciary in the statement?
1: Um, I think it was it was almost like a sort of a laundry list of who are the key constituencies we need to address here. Mm-hmm. But I'm very suspicious of the Mangagua faction. They they call it the Lacoste faction. Right, and Lacoste
0: for crocodile. Yes, yeah. yes,
1: yes. Um, I'm, I'm very suspicious of its relationship with the judiciary. For example, the judge president currently is a retired brigadier general. And he served under, in, during the Liberation War, he served under Constantine Chihuahua, who was the commander of the Defence Forces, who declared this coup. Mm. So the relationship there is very sort of uh, very tight. And the other very problematic thing is that Nangagwa led an amendment to the Constitution in order to empower the President to actually appoint senior judiciary members, the Chief Justice, the Deputy Chief Justice and the Ju- Judge President. Previously in the Constitution, and this is a four-year-old Constitution, Uh, what it actually provides is a a judicial service commission is actually the one that conducts interviews and then it then picks up it it then picks about three and the president selects from those that have been interviewed in public Mm. and then we actually had a public interview process and because they wanted to be able to handpick judges in that process they actually led an amendment that was that was actually fronted by and he led it in parliament and pushed it through and that was essentially about him imagining himself as president and wanting to appoint a chief justice of his own choice and we also have this judge president who was a former uh, uh, brigadier general who's right. waiting in the wings right. so I'm really, I don't I wouldn't really trust what they say about the judiciary, I, I have very serious doubts about that because of what we see these you know, these connections between what they've done before and someone who was supposed to be in their faction who's waiting in the wings to become a, a much more senior jurist. So that's my sense of that.
0: That's really, it makes me pessimistic, hearing that.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm really, so I'm really uncomfortable about, because Prior to this, we've always known that Nangagwa has been placing different people in key parts of the state. And this has been a big complaint by the other factions so there have been seminars held as people have been talking about a veritable coup. So we have what's happening now where the military has actually stepped in forward but around May, June, I was at a seminar where people have been complaining that, look he's taking over different parts of the state and putting his loyalists there. And this has been a significant concern. And in the judiciary, what we've known is that the judge president as a retired brigadier general, is his man there. Mm. And so this amendment and having this person there and the process to select the chief justice, all of this was just really suspicious. So Had
0: it happened before? I mean, as a historian, right, you have a sense of, you know, the judiciary prior to all of this. Did you see things like that before where people were kind of, where the executive branch was trying to have more influence in who was in the judiciary and how they would rule? Or did you see more independence in the past?
1: I think the the greatest position of independence in, in the judiciary, I think, was from 1984 up to around early 2001. Okay. So during that period... So in 1980 we have a judiciary that is by and large inherited from the colonial period right. and so when, when the new government takes over there are a lot of tensions but this is because we have a new political elite and the judiciary that is more aligned with an older political elite right. but around 1984 they, they actually managed to transform the judiciary and you have people that have been appointed by the new government mm-hmm. and from then on you actually see significant tensions between the executive and the judiciary. Mm. You, you find the judiciary behaving like a co-equal branch to the state and so in 1990 we have, I think, what is the first that we have that looks like a constitutional crisis, where the government actually amends the constitution to allow for hanging as a form of execution. And there was a constitutional case that was actually being heard, and arguments had actually been prepared to actually try and illegalize the death sentence by presenting it as something that is a form of inhuman sort of punishment. Right. And the government steps in, and that creates a Big sort of you know constitutional crisis and public statements between the president and the chief justice, mm-hmm. um, and a serious clash that then subsides. We see that again happening around 2000, but after that, a lot of the old judges are then forced into retirement. So once they get forced into retirement, we then have a very what can I say? A judgment, not necessarily that they are bought out, but they are amenable to you know the government's you know. As well. Right need. So whenever we had a sensitive political case, the judiciary was more likely to rule in favor of the government, government. And it was never like that prior. So when you compare the judiciary before 2001 and after, you see what some have called the captured judiciary. Mm. Especially when it comes to political cases. If it's a business case, if it's a you know commercial law, mm-hmm. you have a chance of getting a fair hearing. Mm-hmm. But when it gets political, and if it's high stakes, you're not going to get a fair hearing from this judiciary. have.
0: Now what are the main takeaways that you hope readers will have after reading your book?
1: I guess the the first one really has to do with grassroots struggle for human rights. I think, for me, one of the key things is that the struggle for human rights in Zimbabwe has a much longer history than this post-Cold War kind of moment. Mm -hmm. And the particular human rights discourse we have in the post-Cold War period that Mm -hmm. many have found to be sort of more more impoverished and doesn't quite empower poor people to make claims on the government. But if you sort of recontextualize the struggle for rights in Zimbabwe and place it within that longer history, starting from where I start, the post-World War II period, Mm -hmm. what you actually have is what some call the politics of rights, where you demand rights from the state and you actually struggle politically for them, Mm -hmm. not a kind of discourse of rights whereby you delegate the struggle to to NGOs. So I think when you recontextualize the struggle for political rights in Zimbabwe, and you start from the 1950s, I think that's a really important, it gives us an resources to to re-energize the the struggle for rights in Zimbabwe and I hope in Africa more generally so that's something, that's a key thing I hope to be taken away but the the other thing is also that the state and its ability to use the laws, the the Zimbabwean state and even the colonial and post-colonial state has been very fluent in, in, in employing the Sort of a language of repression, and there was always a kind of legalism to the state in Zimbabwe, and it has very long, sort of long history, and it's it's a roots line the kind of uh, the liberation war period. Where yeah. So you find this is when the state of exception becomes embedded in the in the sort of in the state as a means of statecraft, and this is where you find the. the sort of the state becoming very sort of able to use the law in order to repress people. So whenever things happen in Zimbabwe, it's not as if, you know, you just have these army people who turn up at your door and take you. A law is actually passed that restricts and limits your liberties. And then when you try to then speak freely, they get you as on of an offense according to some repressive law. Right. And this is and some have called this an authoritarian rule of law. And this is what the Zimbabwean state is very sort of skilled at. Mm-hmm. And I think this presents hard lessons for activists. Um, these days one of the key sources of political imaginaries is the law. And right. People talk that
0: if we could just, you know, we could legalize our way to freedom.
1: Precisely. So <laughs>
0: it sounds like no, actually, you can it can be used for evil, too.
1: And so this judicialization of politics is actually not the way to go in a context like Zimbabwe. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a hard lesson we get from this long history of sort of law and politics. That in fact, when you're struggling with a state like this, law is not even effective, let alone as a sword. It's not effective as a shield. So, it might not actually be the way to go for activists trying to bring about a more progressive and democratic future for the country, and it's a it's a hard lesson. And, and I had hoped to be to come up with a more optimistic kind of story, right. but it is what it seems to me to be to, to be one of the takeaways.
0: Now, what was the most surprising thing that you learned during the course of your research?
1: I think the most surprising thing was at the beginning of the research. I've, I was looking through some old files in, in the Zimbabwean archive, newly accession files from the 1970s, and I found this case of uh, an African villager based somewhere in the southwestern part of Zimbabwe mm-hmm. who engaged in a four-year legal struggle with the colonial authorities. And in the end, he won that struggle and was actually awarded damages. It was about 1,500 in Rhodesian Rud- dollars at the time, mm-hmm. which was about 1,500 pounds, which is a substantial amount of money. But it's still a lot of questions running in my mind, like, why would an African in a colonial sort of context decide to use the colonial law as his sort of resource in struggling against the colonial states? And- why would the colonial system allow him to win to the extent of that they have to pay him?
0: Damages, right. So, And how many people
1: are doing this? Right. What does this tell us about the legal system? What does this tell us about the nature of the colonial state? And all of those questions then set me on this sort of journey of trying to discover what is the nature of the law in, in Zimbabwean history? How is it being used to contest and to constitute state power? So that was a fascinating thing I learned at the beginning that then sort of kept me going as, as, yeah. as doing the research.
0: That's great. Now, I wanted to ask you a question that was originally articulated by Vassar College political scientist Zachariah Mampili. In our second half of this first season of Upanamu Africa, we're asking our guests to answer a question that Zachariah raised in episode 24, and this is a question that he had raised in the context of um, a conference that Zach and I held about decolonizing African studies. So he asked six, but I'm just going to ask you one. Who is the audience, real or imagined, for our intellectual work?
1: So this is something that I had to sort of confront as I was uh, in the process of writing the book and and, and especially as it was coming the the process was coming to an end and I realized that as a Zimbabwean working in the UK Mm -hmm. I couldn't write a book that would just be available to people in the UK Mm -hmm. Uh, for example as a hardback that costs about a hundred dollars yeah you know and someone tweeted at me, and you know when I sort of tweeted in a poster of the book, mm-hmm. and they just said that 's not for us and it it made the, it struck the point home that mm. you know knowledge about Zimbabwe that is produced needs to be accessible to Zimbabweans right. and one of the practical issues is to be able to get a paperback copy mm-hmm. that is available and can be sold and can be bought in zimbabwe mm-hmm. and that 's one of' so that's something that became very real to me mm-hmm. um, and obviously other formats, being able to sort of engage with people about the kind of ideas that are in the book, because it is really about Zimbabwe's past and possibly it is something that people can use to think about its prospective future right. and I think there needs to be ways of sort of making it available or at least some in different forms to people to be able to engage with the ideas at least if we can start a debate then you know, I'm happy, so for me, the audience has to be beyond the ivory tower of academia, and it, has, it needs to start to involve people broader, and especially people on the ground in Zimbabwe. And that, in, at the end of the day, means in some ways reformatting and repackaging the knowledge we produce about Africa. Right. So that's the sense I get.
0: Yeah. Well, that's one of the reasons why I started the podcast, actually. is because, you know, I teach at a place where students have to pay $60,000 a year to go to school. And I just don't think that... Um, that should be the entrance fee to knowledge um, so I hope that by being a guest this week on Ufamu Africa that you know, the lessons that one can learn from your book that you've shared with us already will, will resonate with some of our listeners and um, all around the world and especially on the continent now before we go I do have one more question though um, we normally ask our guests about books that they're reading right now or have read recently do you have any book recommendations for our listeners
1: so it's it's a book I read recently, and 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 I'm afraid it's it's a literature book. It's like a, it's yes, so
0: we love that fiction's so. great.
1: <laughs> so this is a this is a book by a Zimbabwean lawyer and writer it's a collection of short stories it's oh my been, god is it Patina
0: Gappa yes <laughs> so, <laughs> it's I rotten. haven't read Rotten Row yet but okay so tell us tell us what you so think about it it's
1: fantastic so yeah. and it's really well crafted mm-hmm. you, you read separate stories and you don't actually realize how they're connected until mm-hmm. you get to sort of story number five and you realize this character is actually the husband of the person in story number two <gasps> and some of the devices Clever she uses. Like she uses one of the stories is told in the form of a legal judgment and it's a judge reading their judgment. Mm-hmm. So case so and so involves this lady, these are the, the, the you know, these are the the, the facts in this matter. Yeah. And it goes in that way and I thought that was a fantastic device, you know, mm-hmm. to use that as a literary device to actually carry a story forward. So I thought it's fantastically written, it's well crafted and because of of my research that touches on the law, right it actually sort of brings sort of fiction and fact together, together. in a way that, we, that I found interesting. and So that's, that, that's a book I recommend.
0: Well, thank you so much, and thank you for being a guest this week.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: That's all for this week. Find us online and tell us what you're reading and learning about the continent. You can listen to Ufahamu Africa on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or on our website UfahamuAfrica.com Find us on Twitter at Ufamu Africa. Ufahamu Africa is a production of Smith College, sponsored by the government department and the Committee on Faculty Compensation and Development. Kawia Aruna, class of 2021, is Ufahamu Africa's research and production assistant. Technical assistance is provided by the Center for Media Production, and music is courtesy of Kevin McLeod. Thanks for listening. Until next week, safiri salama.